Hello and welcome back to the History of the British Isles podcast. This is episode 33, the end to all that. So, we're back. Before we begin, along with the necessary plugs, I'd like to just briefly go through what the plan is for the next month or so. If you follow me on Twitter, which you really should do by the way, you'd know that I spent last weekend, along with releasing an episode, interviewing the creators of the Thugs and Miracles and Viking Age podcasts. This weekend, as long as all goes to plan, I'll be interviewing the creator of the History of Christianity podcast. I'll be releasing those interviews over the course of the next three weeks so I can research Welsh history from the books I got funded by patrons, of which you should become one if you enjoy the show a great deal. After that, we'll get back to the usual flow. Cool? Cool. Now, remember to follow me on Twitter, where I'm at BritishHistPod, and join the community Discord server, as well as become a patron if you enjoy the show and can afford to. I'll link all of those in the description, and without further ado, let us begin. We left off last episode with the Battle of Stamford Bridge, from which Harold came out victorious. However, as I mentioned, his army was severely battered and bruised, not to mention tired and lacking quite a few men. William took this opportunity to make his move and repositioned his fleet to St Valerisa Somme, a better vantage point for attack. Two days after Harold won at Stamford Bridge, he sailed for Kent. The fleet he led consisted of in and around 700 ships headed by William's flagship, known as the Mora. The Mora is depicted in the Bay Oaks Tapestry with a carved dragon head at its prow, likely used to distinguish it from the rest of the fleet and single it out as an item of royal prestige. Interestingly, William wanted the boat to appear even more grand and had a trumpeteer-sounding signals at the stern. We don't know precisely where William landed. Most historians and chroniclers claim he arrived at Pevensey. However, Pevensey was the most well-known port on the southern shore of England and might have just been a default answer the chroniclers could give without actually really knowing. Recently, an amateur archaeologist by the name of Nick Austin has discovered evidence that William may have landed and set up his initial base at Wilting Manor, outside the modern town of Hastings. Wherever he landed, when William did do so, he ordered that some of his boats be burnt. This was symbolism. There was no way back for him or his troops now. The rest of the fleet, that that was not burned, was pulled ashore and dismantled. An earth embankment was built across the harbour mouth to protect the ship's from the weather and a castle was constructed at the top of a nearby hill, the first truly Norman castle in England. However, this castle was made of wood, as opposed to what we'd commonly view as a castle, which was which would be made out of stone. After securing his position, William set about burning, pillaging and otherwise making the lives of the locals awful. This was in order to force Harold to move south to face him, 
and defend his subjects. Taking the bait, on hearing of William's landing while still at York, Harold charged down the old Roman road of Ermine Street. On his way, Harold stopped off at Walter Abbey to pray for victory. It took him until the 12th of October to get back to London, at which point he began gathering a larger force to face off the Norman threat. He didn't spend too long in London, though. He set off for Hastings and to battle by the 14th. William was told of Harold's approach by the vassal of his half-brother, Bishop Odo of Bio, named Odoric Vitalis. He then marched off to face Harold. And so begins the Battle of Hastings. On the 14th of October 1066, Harold and William lined up their forces for a battle, in a place simply known today as Battle, which would change the course of British history. Harold, on his part, drew up his army in three wedges on the top of a ridge, overlooking the battlefield of the Norman army. Because of this, he started off in a far better position. He was not constrained by time and did not need to attack William. In fact, the main reason he lost the battle was because his men lacked the dif- discipline to sit back and defend. Speaking of his men, Harold had only slightly more than 5,000 bruised, battered and tired men against the Norman force of 15,000 infantry, archers and cavalry. This leans in on his decision to fight from a defensive position. He had little choice. William's army outnumbered him 3 to 1, and his men worked in peak fighting shape no matter what. As such, it is to Howard's credit that he put up serious resistance and very nearly won the battle. <laughs> Howard's men were organised in a shield wall formation. Their shields were interlocking and the men were packed tightly together. This meant the English didn't have to do much to break the Normans, just make sure they weren't broken first. Of course, this formation did have its disadvantages. It relied on strict discipline and made the English troops vulnerable if they ever tried to be proactive. Initially, the shield war was a great success. The Norman knights hurled themselves at it again and again, but they were always repelled by the English. This might just turn out to be Howard's day. Hell, in the left of William's army, the Breton cavalry under Count Allen began to give way. Aldric Vitalis records, The ferocious resolution of the English struck terror into the foot soldiers and knights of the Bretons and other auxiliaries on the left wing. They turned to flee and almost the whole of the Duke's battle line fell back, for the rumour spread that he, he had been killed. But the Duke, seeing a great part of the opposing army springing towards to pursue his men, met them as they fled, threatening and striking them with his spear. Bearing his head and lifting his helmet, he cried, Look at me, I'm alive, and with the aid of God I will gain the victory. No sooner had the Duke spoken these brave words than their falling courage was restored, and surrounding several thousand of their pursuers, they mowed them down almost at once. Basically, the English broke through the, the lines to chase down the fleeing Bretons and got surrounded and cut down. This was the turning point of the battle. The English shield wall had been broken and the Normans were only so happy to take advantage and expand any cracks. The English soldiers fought, by all accounts, bravely, but their exhaustion and the size of the Norman forces bearing down on them certainly took their toll. Harold's two remaining brothers, Gerth and Leofwin, were cut down, and, as we all know, Harold would be next. I assume you all know the basics of the story. 
Harold took an arrow to the eye, as depicted in the Bayek's tapestry. The tapestry de- then depicts him being run down by a normal Norman cavalryman, but that bit is usually left out of the, of the more general story. However, there's not much evidence for this. It's just as, if not more, likely he was cut down in the melee. After this death of deaths, the English resolve was broken and they fled into the night. William gave thanks to God for his victory and, as tradition has it, found a battle abbey on the spot where Harold fell. That would be quite easy to do, seeing as I've been to Battle Abbey and it's quite a big place. He also asked that his army do penance for for the souls they had killed that day. Eventually, the body of Harold was found. However, again, as tradition has it, the body was so badly disfigured that it had to be shown to Edith Swanneck, his mistress, to identify marks on his body. At first, the body of the last Anglo-Saxon kings was buried to, next to the battlefield with the headstone reading, Here lies Harold, King of the English. However, his name was so blackened by later Norman chroniclers that it was disinterred and taken to the Abbey Harold founded at Walton. This is not the end of the story of the Norman Conquest, though most serious opposition had been defeated. London still held out to William, and large parts of the country would have seen no reason to submit to the new king. As such, William's first aim was to secure the capital. He marched to Dover, and from there to Canterbury. William then continued on to London Bridge, which he found too heavily defended, and continued along the southern bank of the Thames till he reached Wallingford. Along his way, he sent a detachment of his army to secure Winchester. At this point, the English knew the game was up. The first to submit was Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, who led a delegation consisting of some of the most important English bishops and thanes. By Christmas, William had also gained the submission of the three main English earls, uh, Edwin, Morcar and Morfeoth, along with Archbishop Eldred of York. All of these men were allowed to keep their positions, but as we shall see in a few months, that would not last. Now that his power of England was somewhere near total, William decided it was time to get crowned. On Christmas Day 1066, Archbishop Eldred of York crowned the first Norman King of England. No one would have known at the time, but this signalled the end of Anglo-Saxon England and of the traditional English bureaucracy, a subject I hope to cover in a future special episode. The new king pardoned Edgar Atheling, the young grandson of Edmund Ireside, who had been recognised king by the Londoners, and got about to ruling England. Well, we've reached the end of our Anglo-Saxon narrative. I've ho- I hope you've enjoyed the journey. I sure as hell have. We, we reached the forming of England in late May last year, and since then I've released 15 episodes. One third of those have been made in the past month or so, so that shows off the kind of schedule I can achieve effectively. All I can say is sorry that I didn't do such a schedule sooner. I think it will be useful to both me and you to wrap up this narrative with a brief summary of what we've gone through since the fall of Rome. I'll try to keep it as concise as possible, though that will be hard. The Romans left England and Wales in the mid-400s, following a series of revolts, the last of which was led by a man named Constantine. Basically, they didn't think Britain was worth the trouble of garrisoning when all it did was revolt, not to mention Italy was under attack by the Goths and Huns. 
At first, England did reasonably okay, but the pressure from the Gaelic tribes from across the Irish Sea, the Picts and Saxon raiders from Germany, got to such a point where where the once-centralised, Romanised Britons splintered into clans under the control of regional warlords. Even this did not secure Britain, and these warlords were forced to hurt Anglo-Saxon mercenaries. As legend has it, a pair called Hengist and Horsa, which literally means horse and stallion, told their compatriots of the bounty in England, and began the Anglo-Saxon conquest. However, there isn't a great deal of evidence on that, and it seems to be quite similar to other semi- or fully legendary conquerors from around this period. What we do know is that the Anglo-Saxons started to take over England. Some violence was probably involved, but we really don't know how much. A lot of the conquest would have merely been cultural. Anyways, I'm getting sidetracked. All we really need to know is that the Anglo-Saxons came to power in the form of small petty kingdoms. Over time, these kingdoms consolidated into something like the traditional heptarchy. The biggest of these were Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, Kent, Sussex, Wessex and Essex. These kingdoms competed for power over their rivals, with this developing into a series of high king's beads called Bretwalders. Though this term was slightly retrospective, it's still a useful term for narrativizing this messy period of English history. The first Bretwalder was Earl of Sussex, one of the original Anglo-Saxon conquerors, and he was followed up by another one of the early conquerors, Sabolan of Wessex. However, these don't really matter much to the concise narrative I'm trying to tell. No, the first truly important Bretwalder was King Aethelbert of Kent. Aethelbert married a Frankish princess named Bertha, and was seen as sympathetic to Christians as he let Bertha have a personal chapel. As such, the Pope sent a missionary named Augustine, like Saint Augustine, to try to convert him. Though suspicious of the Christians, fearing magic, Aethelbert allowed Augustine to set up a church and was later converted himself. From there, many of the other Anglo-Saxon rulers converted, though it would take around half a century for England to become fully Christianised. From there, we enter the period of the supremacies, as I'm calling it. Here, one kingdom dominated England for a few generations before being defeated by the next kingdom in line. The first supremacy was that of Northumbria, who spread from the north of England, down to around Lincoln in the south-east, and up to the Firth of Forth, the bit where Scotland gets narrower before expanding into the highlands. I'll leave a map of this up on the website. Anyways, Northumbria dominated England for much of the 600s, only interrupted by the last stand of pagans in England led by Penda of Mercia. Penda held supremacy over England between about 633 and 655 before Northumbria reinstated their own supremacy. Northumbria was succeeded in the role of Supreme Kingdom by Mercia, leading to a period known as the Mercian Supremacy. The main Mercian king in this period was a man called Offa of Mercia. The Mercia was still supreme well before his reign in the mid to late 700s. Offa spent his life, and I'm heavily sympathising, subjugating the rest of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and building a big ditch between Mercia and Wales. Always a good initiative. His successors were less capable, but succeeded in holding on to the supremacy till it was stole by Wessex under a king called Egbert, Alfred's grandfather. Wessex held the supremacy while Viking raids ravaged England and were fairly capable in resisting the Northmen. Eventually, the raids became expeditions of conquest, 
resulting in the Great Heathen Army. What was this Great Heathen Army, you ask? Well, it was a massive force of Vikings that invaded England under the commands of the sons of the mythic Ragnar Lothbrok. This force destroyed all of the English resistance, save for parts of Mercia and Wessex. The two former enemies allied, with Wessex as the dominant power, to defeat the threat and were generally successful. At this point, Wessex was led by Alfred's older brother, Aethelred. However, we start to see the seeds of what would come under Alfred. The brothers worked well together and were and generally held steady, but in 1071, Aethelred died and left power to Alfred. Initially, Alfred was defeated by the Vikings, pushed back to the marshes in the southwest of England. He was, however, able to recover and push the Vikings back and out of Mercia before dying and leaving Wessex to his son, Edward. Edward, in collaboration with his talented sister, Aethelflaed, expanded Anglo-Saxon control into East Anglia and expanded Alfred's sister of Burr's fortified towns into Mercia. On the death of Aethelflaed, who held control in Mercia, Edward also consolidated the Anglo-Saxon domains into one kingdom. This was built upon by his son, Aethelstan, who conquered Northumbria and became the first king of England. He also expanded English power over the rest of Britain and was, le- and was viewed as high king by the whole of the island. However, Aethelstan died childless and left England to first his younger brother Edmund and then his other younger brother Edred. Both of these lost and then regained Northumbria, which still had a bit of an independent spirit. Edred was succeeded by Edmund's son, Edwig, who ruled for for only five or so years. Then came Edgar the Peaceable, Edwig's younger brother. Edgar's reign is seen as the climax of Anglo-Saxon England, a time of domestic stability and a respite from Viking raids. His reign was also lengthy, further adding to this feeling of stability. However, on his death, the chaos returned. His son, Edward the Martyr, ruled for barely a year before being dispatched by Elfrith, mother of Aethelred the Unready, and Edgar's former wife. Aethelred's reign started okay, but the Viking raids resumed, a threat the weak and impressionable Aethelred wasn't able to deal with. This culminated in Spain, Forkbeard invading and conquering England before dying, allowing Aethelred to return for a brief while. He started to turn things around, but too little, too late. Swain's son, Cadut, defeated first Aethelred and then his far more capable son, Edmund Ironside. Cadut turned out to be a fairly capable and tame ruler for a Viking, and stabilised England before dying and leaving it to first his son Harold and then his other son Harthacnut. On the death of Harthacnut, the royal house of Wessex returned to power under Edward the Confessor. Edward, however, suffered from overmighty vassals and had his power severely reduced by the Godwin clan, no matter how hard he tried to force them out. Edward died childless, leading to Harold Godwinson seizing the throne. We've covered the rest of the story this episode and at the end of last time, so I won't delve into 1066 here. That was supposed to be a concise summary, but it ended up ballooning. I hope it was worth it, though, and this summary bookended the Anglo-Saxons nicely. I personally found the summary useful to consolidate my own knowledge and quote a narrative of all that went down. If you did enjoy the episode, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. It 
makes it climb up the charts and become more visible so other people can listen. Also, please consider becoming a patron. It costs as little as $1 a month and helps the show immensely. Please also email me or message me on on the Discord with any feedback, questions or corrections you have. It's great to hear from listeners. A big thank you to my $5 Alderman tier patron, Anita Gardoni, and goodbye.